the fifth episode of Soul Kitchen. I'm in Guatemala City at the moment and I'm talking to Josh Lefine, an Enneagram guru that I met recently through a mutual friend. And at the moment I'm uh, taking his Enneagram course, which is a fascinating uh, concept, but I want to know more in this uh, podcast. Josh, how are you today? What's up, man? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Yes, I'm excited uh, too. So, so tell me, what is this Enneagram about? Yeah. Okay. The Enneagram is a personality system. It's a, it's a system of personality types. And you can think of it in the same category as Myers-Briggs or the Big Five or astrology, or if you're familiar with any of their personality frameworks. In my opinion, it's the best one <laughs> because it's... It just goes really, really deep. It's so a couple orienting ideas. First of all, there are nine types in the Enneagram. Ennea means nine in Greek, gram shape. Enneagram is a nine-sided shape, and there are nine personality types arranged around this diagram. And each type you can think of as having a basic fear and a basic desire that the whole personality is arranged around or that kind of comes from. So like as an example, my own type, I'm a type three the nickname is the achiever or I, I call it the value seeker and the basic fear of type three is of being worthless and the basic desire is to feel valuable. And so type threes typically are unconsciously motivated to become a person worthy of admiration, to become desirable, attractive, successful, and threes tend to be goal oriented. And it's not that other types don't experience this or don't relate to this and that it's only a Threes don't have a monopoly on these things because it's a universal human pattern, but threes have a particularly salient relationship to this idea of uh, fulfilling my potential and being a person worthy of um, love and admiration than other types do. So there are nine uh, personality types. Mm -hmm. And I also read that within these types, there are nine levels of development. Can you elaborate a bit on, on that? Yeah, so... What you're referring to is there's a really amazing Enneagram teacher who's no longer with us. His name is Don Riso. And he discovered um, these nine levels of development. And what that is, is um, I'm going to nitpick here. And actually, I don't particularly think of it as a developmental model in the sense that it doesn't start at a point of origin and then grow through stages. It's more like a thermometer of your current state of psychological health and balance and capacity for presence. And there's a whole maybe thing to say about that. But the point is, is that you have within every type structure, a type is not just a static list of traits and behaviors. A a type structure in the Enneagram is a whole 
system of attitudes and behaviors that show up differently when you're healthy or when you're not so healthy. And so basically think of it just as a spectrum from healthy to unhealthy um, or from like totally awake, enlightened to um, pathological, um, psychotic. And that spectrum is the nine levels of development. And there are, so like, just as an example, let's just cause I already, I already introduced type three. When type threes are really healthy in the healthy range of the nine levels of development, then they are authentic and heart centered and are able to listen to their true heart's desire and they feed themselves based on what is really wanting to come through them. Um, feed not in terms of food, but in terms of what actually nourishes their soul. And when they're not as healthy, then they lose touch with their hearts and they seek a sense of identity in the, in the admiration of other people. And so they're looking for external validation. They're looking to become a person that's successful and they're becoming, I like to use the word fixated on becoming a person who's yeah, successful straight up. And so I'm becoming maybe um, workaholic or even cutting corners or being deceptive or lying to myself and things like that. And you can imagine if I, as I go all the way down the levels and there's pathology that results from that. Just the idea of wanting to be valued or wanting to be admired by the people um, and the, the ways that I can relate to that from a healthy place or an unhealthy place. And um, I'm a seven, for instance, an enthusiast. Like what's, what's healthy for my type and unhealthy? Yeah, so type seven is sometimes called the enthusiast or I like to call it the freedom seeker. And the basic desire and fear and desire of type seven. So sevens are afraid of things like boredom or basically sevens are, are anxious that experiences that they're in will become stale over time that they'll be trapped mm -hmm. in boredom or pain or something uncomfortable and they are seeking to be nourished and fulfilled by some kind of experience that they somehow internally are convinced is outside of them and their desire basic desires to be happy vibrant fulfilled nourished um free and when sevens are really healthy then there is this really beautiful quality of ecstasy and appreciation and gratitude that comes from any experience that's in front of me. Like doesn't actually matter the content of my experience it just matters the quality of attention I'm bringing to it. And there's a way that I can just radically be with the, what is here and reality is, is revealing itself freshly to me in this moment. And it's just wonderful no matter what's happening. And when I'm not as healthy, then I can start becoming stimulation seeking and kind of like, maybe like a stimulation junkie looking for the next fix of what's going to do it for me, um, anticipating where the next um, fun thing is going to be, where the next source of stimulation is going to be gorging on my experiences, not actually being satiated or nourished by experiences um, and being constantly on the move. Um, basically like doubting my level of satiety or um, not, yeah, not trusting that what is here in front of me can actually be a source of contentment. And so, as you can imagine, the further down I go as a seven, the more scattered I can become, the more glib I can become, the more demanding, and the less capacity I have to actually be nourished. And the more healthy I become, then the more I can actually savor my current experience. 
I um, yeah, it helped me a lot because I suddenly became aware. I've been looking for distractions a lot in in terms of experiences or other people or coffee or alcohol. Once I became aware of it, I tried to yeah, be more present, try to meditate more, and mm-hmm. enjoy the moment more. And I'm not, of course, yet at the, the highest level of development, but it really helped me. And um, how did you get interested in the Enneagram in the in the first place? Yeah, I was recommended. This is well over almost eight years ago, I was living in St. Louis. There's a whole context around this. Basically, a friend of mine recommended I take a class. She had been to a three-day immersive weekend workshop on the Enneagram taught by this guy in St. Louis, and she recommended it to me. And at the time, I was a brand new manager. First time I'd ever been the boss of anyone. And I took it thinking that it was like, oh, yeah, personality types. This is going to help me become a better manager. And it... To say that the class changed my life is an insane understatement. I mean, it was just, it radically revealed so many things about how my entire life had been and why I was motivated in certain ways and why I, like times in my life when I got depressed, why I got depressed, times in my life that things were going really amazing, why I felt so good during those times. It just clarified everything for me. And it also helped me become a much better manager, but in ways I didn't expect. But yeah, to answer your question, it was... I was 27 living in St. Louis and I took this class and it was like. And can you give an example of uh, when you were depressed and how that is connected to your personality type? Oh yeah. That's a beautiful question. Um, yeah. So the first time I got really depressed, I was in college. I was in a, I, when I went to, school, I went to Princeton and I was actually, let me back up and and give a little more context. I went to a very small high school. There were 39 kids in my graduating class. I went in, uh, it was a brand new Jewish high school in Houston, Texas. And when I was there, I was sort of like involved in everything. I was on the basketball team. I was in theater productions. I was, I played soccer and baseball. I was in the math club, national honor society. I did everything. And I was like, because the school was so small, I was able to excel in everything too. I was kind of like a star in the theater productions and everything. As a type three, remember type threes were like the achiever, the performer, or wanting to be admired and valuable. Um, it was like a total playground for me. I loved high school and I was um, I got to basically like be a star for four years. It was amazing. Then I got to Princeton and I was confronted with my utter mediocrity relative to my peers. <laughs> and at Princeton, I was just average. And there were people, I mean, there were classmates who had contributed to curing, you know, cancer and things like, or had made major discoveries and things or had been Olympiads in physics or literally had won medals in the Olympics. And these were just people taking classes with me and I was like drinking with them on weekends. And I also bought into the illusion that is common at Ivy league schools, which is everyone is just effortlessly perfect and everyone's making all A's and everyone's involved in everything. And everyone is like just smiling and doing amazing. And also Princeton, it's worth saying is a very status and prestige oriented culture. Like a lot of Ivy league schools are. And it's like, you look on the Princeton homepage and you can like, if you go there right now, I bet you're going to see, 
an announcement of some professor who just won the Nobel Prize in something or some student who just like saved some, I don't know, species of animal or something like that. It's just people are extraordinary, you know, all over the place. And it's a very difficult place to be if you are comparing yourself to other people a lot, which is what I was doing. I also was like, um, I tried to do everything I did in high school. I was like on a, I was in a dance company. I was in an acapella group. I did theater productions. I was like out drinking every night, trying to be big men on campus. And I was in the hardest possible physics and math classes I could take. And it just was too much. And I totally burnt out and, and crashed in a pretty spectacular way and had a like major depressive episode. Um, and I can kind of make light of it now, but it was like, it was horrible. I mean, I want you to understand. I was like, crying in my room for hours a day because I couldn't make an A on a paper. You know, I was like, I was like sophomore spring and I hadn't yet actually gotten an A on something on a paper. And I had this self-concept that I was a great writer because I got A's in papers in high school. So there I was just obsessed with the approval of my professors and wanting to get good grades and, and was ashamed of showing my face because I couldn't, I felt like I was under, like way underperforming relative to what I perceived the bar to be at Princeton. So that's what catapulted me into one of the worst depressions I ever had. And I had to withdraw for a year and go home and do some therapy before I came back. Um, but anyway, I hope it's clear. I mean, the. Yeah, it, it is very clear. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for sharing your vulnerability. That's very powerful. Sure. But it must have been a humbling experience. And do I understand correctly that maybe your type, type three, is more prone to this? comparison at a Princeton than compared to other types, for instance? Yes. Uh, majorly so, I would say. And I mean, to a certain degree, comparing yourself to other people is a universal human tendency. But it's, um, it's, it belongs, yeah, it kind of belongs, if I were to put it on the Enneagram, it belongs in three territory, comparing yeah. yourself to the successor, you know. And that's kind of, you're, you're giving some context and, um, the, the question is still how you got into the Enneagram. Yeah. Well, let me, I guess it'll just be useful to share the rest of the story. So yeah, there sure. I was back at, so after I withdrew for the year, I did some therapy, came back to school and then kind of did a 180 where I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to check my grades. And I switched majors. I was, I became an English major instead of a um, physics major ended up writing a play for my thesis, which was something I kind of wanted to do. Um, and how do I put this? I guess I just, because I had such a, because I was like, in quotes, lucky enough to go through a major existential depressive crisis, young, then I started to question a lot of the traditional notions of success relatively early. So there I was like at 20 years old, not checking my grades at Princeton. And when I graduated from Princeton, um, I kind of had another brief depressive episode where I was like, moved, I moved back home. I was tutoring SATs, which I hated. SATs are like the standardized test you take in the US to qualify for college admissions. And I thought it was just a big dumb circle. I was like, I here I am sitting, sleeping again in my childhood bedroom, tutoring the same standardized test I hated in high school. And at Princeton, they tell you when you graduate, this, the world is your oyster. You can do anything you want. And I was like back at square one, you know, the origin points with, um, with basically only a sense of my own worthlessness <laughs> um, to, uh, to show. 
it was um, pretty horrifying. And so I was just like, what am I going to do? And I went through a pretty big philosophical journey and this word authenticity became like really important to me. I was like, how, it was like, I don't even, I, the word authenticity got introduced to me through, I forget exactly, but it just was like, how do you even be authentic? How do you not just adapt to the expectations of others? And I just started to realize that everything, most of what I had done in my life was just trying to jump through the hoops that other people put in front of me, you know, um, trying to get good grades, trying to win approval of my professors, trying to, um, you know, get this kind of job or that kind of job or whatever. And I was sick of it. I just got super sick of it and disgusted with the whole, like that whole thing. And then I one day went to a Lady Gaga concert and she had a whole thing at the time of being authenticity was like a major theme of hers, which was one of the reasons I was interested in her. And I went to her concert and she played the song born this way. And she had this whole speech about authenticity and it just like, that was a really important kind of major life moment for me where when she played the song, I had this kind of, I cried, I just wept and the weights of, having lived a life of inauthenticity and not really ever asking myself, what do I really want? Was just kind of crashed down. And I realized that, okay, I'm going to not do that anymore. I'm going to try to do what I want. So that was the day I decided that I was going to become a piano player. And, um, I, wow. Yeah. Is that, did you, um, consider becoming a piano player like earlier in your life and longer in your life? And then suddenly you decided, or was it a spontaneous move? I always was a singer and a performer and I loved performing, but you know, I was at the time I was like in a very three-ish fixated headspace of like, okay, like how can I build my resume enough to get into Stanford law school? And then I was like, Oh wait, no, how can I maybe not law school, but what if I went to Stanford for like engineering? And part of my disgust was waking up to the realization that I didn't actually give a shit about, <laughs> what I was going to do. I just wanted Stanford on my resume. And um, I just couldn't believe how utterly superficial that was. And it was, and how powerfully it was driving me. And um, when, when I saw Lady Gaga perform, it awoke in me a sense of, I had already been tinkering a little bit with the piano, but I just was like, yeah, I want to be, I want to play piano. I was always jealous of people who played the piano. I was, it's one of those like childhood envy things where you see somebody playing and you're like, Oh my God, that is so cool. I just want that for my life. But I never thought it was like at a certain point I had maybe just written it off as like, well, it's too late for me. But there I was 24. And after that concert, I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to play the piano and I'm going to become a piano player. And then, and then I had this whole, this is a whole other thing. I basically had a whole journey as a piano player. Then and, you became a professional piano player. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I learned some songs off YouTube. I got a teacher and then I auditioned for a dueling piano bar, miraculously got the job and then they trained me up. And then a few years later, I found myself as like the new entertainment director or co-entertainment director of this piano bar in St. Louis <laughs> where my friend was like, <laughs> yeah. And so when I learned the Enneagram, 
it was like I'd already gone through this massive personal transformation and the Enneagram. So like just context, the type three, here's one thing to say about the Enneagram virtues. Each type has a kind of characteristic virtue and passion and a whole structure up and down the levels of its development. And one way to think about each type is that when the type is really healthy, they manifest their characteristic virtue. When they're not as healthy, they manifest their characteristic passion and fixation. Um, the virtue of the, of the, of the three is authenticity. And, um, and the passion of the three is vanity and the sense of, I have to basically become extraordinary at something to prove that my existence is worthwhile at all. And, um, so the Enneagram just connected those dots with such precision that it was jaw dropping. When I read this chapter in this book on the Enneagram, I read it was from the wisdom of the Enneagram by Don Reese and Russ Hudson. And I just like, my jaw was literally on the floor. I couldn't believe how utterly precise it was and how like, I mean, certain things in the, in that book were just, just put its finger on things that were very private that I'd never really told anyone about, like a tendency towards deception and lying and wanting and just so desperately wanting people to like me and things like that. And, and the whole journey up towards authenticity and actually doing something for myself, as opposed to just being successful for success's sake, that was like, that was the journey described in this book. And that was what I had been going through. And it was still so alive for me. I was 27, you know, it was only just a few years ago that I'd gone to that Lady Gaga concert and decided to do this for my life. And so that's what grabbed me. I mean, people discover the Enneagram and it hooks them in different ways, but that's why it hooked me so much. Cause it was like, Holy shit, this is real. You know? And it, yeah. It served, it served as a mirror for you. It sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. A mirror and, and, and a clarifier. And, um, how did you then transition from becoming a, a entertainment director towards an Enneagram guru? I mean, how, how did that go? Yeah. Well, actually I have to say I'm, um, <laughs> this word guru that you're using is funny to me. Um, it's, I don't know. I'm having some reaction to it. Um, but anyway, the, um, the question you're asking is, yeah. Um, because you discovered um, you discovered the tool, but then you I mean not everyone that discovers the tool decides to like make make this the new right. focus, right? So I'm curious like yeah, how that happened to you. Yeah. Well it's kind of like when I took my first Enneagram class, it was so incredible to me. I mean the Enneagram reveal it was just so powerful that um, I think I just kind of knew at that time that I was like, oh, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be doing this. And there was a pretty big, I mean, at the time I was only three years into this journey of like, I'm becoming a musician and a performer. And that was what I had. And so there was a whole, in a sense, <laughs> extra identity crisis Maybe that's too strong a word, but the point is I was like, oh, I already decided that being authentic means being a musician. So I had to go through a whole other, like, eh, like, what do I do now that I really want to teach the Enneagram? How do I justify that in my head? This is a whole rabbit hole, which we don't have to go into, but it was about 
in a sense, like justifying my self image to myself, which is a whole aspect of the Enneagram. That's like a pretty deep layer of it. Um, but anyway, coming back out of that, the point is, is that I kind of knew almost immediately that this was going to be a thing for me. I was going to, I was going to teach the Enneagram. I was going to help people go through these personal transformations. I was going to help people like see through the matrix and become who they really are. And what do you mean with see through the matrix? Yeah, I just mean, like, um, see through your social conditioning and wake up to these much deeper wisdoms that are in you. And I think partly it's what I mean is, I mean, in a, my, my personal journey is, I, I think of in terms of the Matrix. I mean, if you've seen the movie The Matrix, it's all about, like, you know, a simulation that people live in, but then you can kind of wake up that, oh my God, you're living in this kind of false reality. That's like an illusion, you know, and all of the values that people say are really important are actually just kind of flimsy and thin and wispy when you really look at them from a different angle and you're like, wait a minute, what's the point of life? I thought you're like, I, at least I, I thought it was, let me say it this way. When I graduated Princeton, it was kind of like, I won the society game. You won a? I won the society game. It's like, yes. you know what I mean? It's like you get into Princeton and you're like, yay, I did it. Like, this is what, <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to have done, you know, yeah. um, get into the top school in the country or, and, and then the waking up from the matrix was like, oh my God, this whole thing is just a hilarious Illusion, <laughs> illusion, sham, or something like that. Like the it's, um, it's kind of a game. It's kind of a game. And suddenly you realize there's only one yeah. life, and, and I don't only want to play this game. Yeah, yeah. Not that it doesn't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to look just like be a downer about it the whole time. I mean, it's it has its own value. But the point is, is that my entire worldview was dominated by a value system that I just absorbed completely from my environment growing up. And then when I woke up to the to the to realizing that there are other ways to think of the world. You know, that's, that's what I mean by waking up to the matrix and the Enneagram is an especially powerful tool for it because it shows precisely the cognitive and emotional and, and somatic patterns that you're in that kind of keep you in your own matrix. Yeah. And um, if people are listening to this podcast, what's, what's in it for, for them? And is it possible to make a brief overview of the nine types or is that, is that an impossible question? Um, let's see. It's not an impossible question. I would, we, let's see. You know, we could do that if you want. It's, I would, here's the thing is I would hesitate to do it because each of the types is just this whole, I mean, it's a whole universe unto itself and giving like a one minute explanation of each type is probably just too superficial and unfair. We could do it if you wanted. Um, uh, people can read, read about it too, but maybe, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, what's, what's in it for the listener? Like, like what's in it for the listener? Let's, let's look at the benefits of the Enneagram. Yeah. So, I mean, it really just depends on where you're at and, and what, you know, what your needs are. I mean, if you're, if, first of all, if you resonate to everything that I just said, then you're probably already on a certain wavelength that the Enneagram is like going to be powerful for you. Um, let's say, you know, I, I coach 
a lot of founders and VCs and I use the Enneagram a lot in my coaching and the Enneagram is really, really powerful for interpersonal issues. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tool for insight into other people. First, first of all, I mean, just at a basic level, it's like, it's a, it's a personality typology. It's learning about how people are and what's going on in the inner world. And I feel that our education system in the West, West writ large is like severely underrepresents the inner world. We learn things like biology, physics, chemistry, even, even in high school, when you're learning like poetry and stuff, you're counting syllables and learning iambic pentameter and you're learning vocabulary words. You're not actually learning like, how does this poem touch you or what emotional state, what kind of interstate must the poet have been coming from to write this? You know, those kinds of questions about what's going on in the inner world are just not really foregrounded in our education system. And um, and I think it's a major blind spot in our culture. And when you're when you get into fights with people, when you have interpersonal conflicts with your mom or your partner or your sibling or your co-founder or your, or your boss or whoever, a lot of it is just not understanding how their inner system is wired radically different from yours. Nanny Graham describes these is just a way of getting a blueprint of other someone else's inner world. And it's kind of remarkable to understand how someone else's motivations can be so different from yours. So that's like, first of all, what's in it for you is just, learning about other people, um, which is... I have a, qu I have yeah, a question yeah. about this inner world, because it seems to make so much sense that we integrate this more into mainstream education. Yeah. But why why isn't it yet so, so much integrated? There's a pretty... I mean, one of the historical... Re I mean, it's in the same sense as um, <laughs> our things in our society are the way they are because of major historical precedent. And partly, you know, if you just look, take a historical perspective, like after the scientific revolution, before the scientific revolution, there was some interest in the inner world, mostly in, mostly in, you might say like the mystical branches of religion, where there were questions of like, what, what are the, inner mechanisms that are distracting you from having a direct experience of God right now. Then after science was kind of discovered, it was like, Oh wait, there are ways to discover truth that are like quote unquote objective and rational. And so, and, and material. And so over time it became the way of the world that certainly the developed world that um, we don't value subjective inner states, we value objective truths that can be measured and metricized. And it's like learning how to build a table or learning like what a mitochondria is in your, in your cells becomes much more valued in a world that cares about objective truth than how do you feel? And, um, you know, I mean, even psychology itself is a, is a very new field of academic and scientific inquiry. I mean, Freud didn't hit his stride until like the early twenties of night, early 1920s. And so, um, or actually wait, uh, that might've been young. Yeah. I'd point it like late 1800s, early 1900s is when psychology like really kind of took off in a Western way. And, um, there's still a lot of territory in the inner world. That's only just now being cared about. And so you think of like businesses, 
for example, like so many institutions in our world right now are the way they are because in my opinion of a major blind spot to the inner world. Like for example, businesses are where we check our feelings at the door and we, we don't deal with feelings in the world, in the business world because they're not professional. We also have in schools, we don't care about really how a student is feeling. We care about how they're performing on a standardized test. We don't, and like in a, in, in criminal justice reform, for example, or like a prison system, we care about, we don't really care about how people are feeling and what would have caused them in the first place to, to commit a crime. We care about just like getting them back in line or like punishing them and stuff. So you have a prison system that's causing more trauma than it's, than it, than it's healing. You have a school system that um, basically doesn't really pay attention to the inner world. You have a business system that um, also doesn't really pay attention to the inner world. And, and then you have all these interpersonal conflicts that people are sort of scratching their heads about. And everyone's wondering, like, why are people the way they are? <laughs> and why are people so hard to deal with? And my point of view is, like, it's because <laughs> nobody ever taught us to deal with feelings or inner world things at all. And system has its own inertia. So that's, yeah. yeah. I actually never quite articulated that way before, but that would be, that's that's my actual opinion. I think it's uh, it's fascinating. And I do agree that in, in society or in, in, in business, feelings are not often valued and, and subjective yeah. uh, true, especially people with a scientific medical psychological background are really focused, yeah. Yeah. focused on that. So that's, that's clarifying. So a benefit is for people is to uh, get a better understanding of the inner world. Like mm-hmm. what are other benefits uh, you mentioned relating to other people? Okay. Can you mention them? Sure. So I would maybe characterize the benefits in terms of um, let's say other people and yourself. So there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's just understanding other people. Mm-hmm. And if you ever had an interpersonal conflict in your life, which if you live on planet earth, you have, then a lot of like the most common complaint I hear as a coach when, when people have conflicts is something like, I just don't understand why that person would act that way. I just don't understand. And the Enneagram is a way to understand. And with understanding comes a whole new way of relating to that person that can dissolve the conflict. So it's a, it's a very powerful, I mean, having an X-ray into other people's inner worlds is like, I mean, pretty amazing like could, can you imagine what life would be like if you could if you had that i mean for god's sake like you know it's i find myself in these positions a lot where i'm like trying to explain the value of this and it's like you could understand people <laughs> that's a big deal so that's yeah. that's one or, i think but, i think it is i think it is amazing in my first job i worked in um, strategy consulting and there they used the mbti uh-huh. And then you had like 16 types and, and one of the yeah. questions is, are you like an extrovert or an introvert? Uh-huh. But then I really learned that some people, they like, like from nine in the morning to one in the afternoon, they like to work in a silence. Mm-hmm. Whereas I always like to discuss stuff with people. But mm-hmm. once it was made clear, I could really understand, ah, that person likes to work in silence. So sure. it is it is kind of amazing. Yeah. I must admit that most of the times I read these types, I start with reading my own and only now when I'm doing your course, mm-hmm. I st- really start to learn about um, other people. Yeah. Um, and um, why is the Enneagram uh, more relevant than other types like MBTI or astrology or 
big ocean or human design. Yeah. If people are adopting between these, like, why would you recommend the Enneagram? Sure. Okay. Um, I want to preface this by saying a couple things. First of all, you know, so we talked about the, the Enneagram being really useful for understanding other people. There's also this whole major other point of, of, about understanding yourself and self-reflection, self-inquiry, understanding your own inner world is, is huge. I mean, it's just major in terms of that is like a major developmental thing is learning about how your own system works. Enneagram is very powerful with that. Um, partly, you know, contextualizing the Enneagram in the whole field of, of personality typing systems is, uh, I'd like to preface by saying um, what, what any system is doing whether it's MBTI, whether it's the big five, whether it's human design, whatever, is it's providing a framework and it's giving you language to start digging around in an invisible space. It's like, under, here's like a weird analogy. This is, um, it's kind of like, you know, exploring the inner world is like trying to throw paint at an invisible moving animal or something. It's like, you, you throw it and every once in a while, like a drop of paint hits on it and you're, and it, and it reveals, it's like, Oh wait, yeah, that, that, that kind of looks like that, doesn't it? And sometimes you miss. Um, but over time you throw enough paint at it and some shape emerges and you're like, Oh, I kind of get it. That's how my inner world is shaped. And, um, in this analogy, words are paint and any typology that you use can be useful insofar as it provides language that, um, helps you that that helps you make distinctions about what's going on in your inner world, and as long as your inquiry is really sincere. So that's like ingredient number one is like the actual desire to see what you're not seeing about yourself, and that's a very difficult thing also because a lot of times what you're not seeing about yourself is very hard to incorporate into your identity because you might see, for example, that you lie sometimes, or you might see that you are really distractible, or you might see that something else about you that's like kind of cringy. Um, it's really important to do the work to be able to actually accept that as a part of you. Something else that's interesting is you might discover things about you that are really amazing that are also very difficult to incorporate. Like for example, if you're a really shy person, you might discover that actually you have a really powerful, you have a lot of inner strength that if you were to totally incorporate into your personhood, it would totally shift who you are. Anyway, the point is, is that any of these typing systems, just it's a starting point for like exploring what's going on inside you and it gives you language for it. Um, and actually just to put an exclamation point on the language point, just as an example, like any field of new inquiry, like if you're learning about, I don't know, archery or let's, or let's use um, something. If you're learning about music, for example, you know, learning the names of, of chords is like so important because, you know, then you can actually start making distinctions without language. You don't, you, you can't label stuff and start like actually like messing around and, and other things, things remain a kind of primordial chaos without having clarity. You know what I'm saying? So it gives, oh. it gives a language that you can start to, to understand uh, the, yeah. the inner world. And yeah, yeah. With so that's the language point. Um, and the second point is that the reason I like the Enneagram more than the other type being systems is because the Enneagram is, 
is, I would say, more interested than the other typing systems in the deepest layers of your consciousness that are actually like the unconscious layers that are, by definition, outside of your awareness. And so it's not just about traits and behaviors. It's not just about, oh, I'm, I, it's not just about, for example, I like to work in silence. It's like, I am motivated by X, Y, or Z, and, um, and that shapes me in a major way that I didn't realize until now I have a language for it. And it's like, oh my God, I didn't realize I was doing that. Yeah. I rec I realized that through the Enneagram, I saw more clearly that I have a fear of being trapped and that I have a fear of kind of not like not being seen, not being worthy. Mm -hmm. So I keep, I'm a seven and a three. So I keep achieving, keep looking for new experiences. Sure. And now I'm more aware of it. I kind of like, whew, I'm starting to relax a bit more. Beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's part of the, the whole journey of the Enneagram is first noticing, you know, first radically noticing what's going on in you. And then, um, uh, let's see, a lot of times when people learn the Enneagram, they have this idea that they're going to, they're going to, um, how do I put it? Um, use it as a like self-improvement project. And to a degree, actually it, it, it is used that way. And it's very useful for that. Um, but more, it's just like humbling yourself to how powerful your patterns are. Um, and, um, that's a beautiful statement that you just meant, like just being able to notice like, Oh, wow, I'm doing that seven thing again and then breathing and then relaxing and then not doing your normal seven pattern, but having a choice. So, um, is the, the goal of the, the Enneagram, is it kind of to learn to deal with your, your patterns? Is it to, to unlearn your patterns? Is it to grow in, in, in development or what's the, what, once you know your, your type, like what happens then? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly that it's, it's, so one way to think of it is the nine levels of development. It's because it's becoming a healthy version of your type. And another thing is you might say distinguishing between how you're functioning in the world and how you're being in the world or personality versus being mm -hmm. um, basically self-improvement or like working on your personality is one dimension of the Enneagram. There's also just, working on presence itself and in, in your capacity for presence. Yeah. And um, how, yeah, how would you describe uh, the being part the presence type capacity for presence? Like yeah. for people that are not so aware of like what that means. How do yeah. You see that? I just mean that, you know, you have, you have no choice but to have a personality. Like, you're a person on earth and you interact with other people and you do stuff in the world. And so, and your personality is what functions for you. You know, it's what smiles and says hi and, and remembers your keys and all these kinds of things. And there's also much deeper, what you might call more essential layers of you, like your essential self underneath your psychological activity, that kind of like resounding vast layer of being that is, you know, to use a spiritual cliche, like who you quote unquote really are underneath everything, um, co your consciousness itself. And that's the, that's the dimension of being, you might say. And, yeah. um, and when you are able to contact that, just even having, even having just an awareness of it, it softens and relaxes the personality a lot. 
the personality is basically like uh, it has agendas. Like it need like as a type three, for example, for me, like I want to. It makes me want to be liked by people, and so my personality is helping me achieve that goal. But sometimes it does it in a way that really um, is uh, uh, makes me abandon myself, or um, makes me act in ways that aren't really true to my values. And uh, cultivating presence and contacting being like my central true nature that is inherently worthwhile um, allows the personality to just relax, you know, and stop being so compulsive about its projects. So I really, I think that's really insightful. So when you access deeper presence or when you access your, your being, yeah. it softens your personality and also reduces a bit the agenda that your personality has. Yes. And, uh, and what's the, the benefit of that? Does it make you more relaxed, more compassionate, or like what's the? Um, yes and yes, and also I would say it gives you it gives you a lot more choice. So like it just one way to think about your personality in the context of the enneagram, and this is uh, one way of actually distinguishing the enneagram from other typologies is that in the enneagram personality is the amalgamated set of automatic habitual um, patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting that, mm -hmm. that you contract into when you are uh, triggered or under stress or just coping with the world and just like going about your normal autopilot business. And, you know, when you're really kind of quote unquote trapped in your personality, you don't have a lot of choice. You're basically like an automaton. <laughs> Um, and that may sound like a strong and sort of controversial statement and it is, but if you really sit with yourself and real, like it, it, it's true, like you, you know, like somebody says something to you and if you can't help yourself, but respond in a certain way that not being at a, not being able to help yourself, that's basically like how the personality works. It sort of is, it's operating in a sense without you. <laughs> you the, cap the capital Y you and so for example like let's just talk like in a very practical way of being a leader or like a founder of a company I work with a lot of founders and it's like you you as a founder you know just because you're founder doesn't mean you stop being a normal person and <laughs> you know, and you have triggers and patterns of being just like everyone else does and some people are going to really annoy you and when you you know, there you are trying to like be a good leader and somebody says something and it sets you off and you respond in a way and you are, and there you are doing your personality <laughs> and being able to have a choice, like not fly off the handle or for example, actually speak up for yourself when normally you wouldn't. These are, these are capacities that you can grow into, but only if you kind of are able to step outside of the personality enough to, um, cultivate, uh, kind of become grounded in who you quote unquote really are. Yeah. Yeah. So if you become more aware, it gives you more, more choice and yeah. instead of the, the personality runs your day, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. I think it's fascinating. And we discussed a bit, uh, the benefits for individuals, but I also feel or think you have a bigger vision, right? For the Enneagram on, on, on business on politics and society and humanity. So why does it matter that these individuals get suddenly excited about Enneagram at a more collective level? 
Oh man, I like, love your question. This is like such a, so, thank you so much. I can't wait to answer this. Um, <laughs> this is like my whole thing. <laughs> um, that's also the criticism in personal development, right? That people are just like worried about themselves. Yes. Um, wow, that's a thing to respond to as well. I mean, oh my God. I mean, how do I even begin? Um, okay, let me answer the first question first. So at the collective level, I am right this very second doing a lot of studying about um, human development itself. And like previously I was referencing how the, the Enneagram levels of development, so-called, aren't actually a developmental model in the sense that they don't start at a point of origin and you don't grow through like stages. However, there are models of human development, like adult development theory is a whole field of psychology. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, I don't know how to put this other than to say it's kind of the most important one. It's like people have, like you, listening to this right now, like you have the potential to grow through stages of wisdom and maturity that are m wiser and mature than what you're, than where you're at right now, straight up period. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and so do I. And it's amazing to me. Like there are, there are very well researched, like scientifically researched models of, e of ego development of human development. And there's like a bunch of different theorists and they all point to this, a pretty similar model. Um, let me make this really concrete. So in child development, it's really easy to understand. Like you could, there are videos of this. You can go watch. Um, so let me get academic for a second. There's a guy named Piaget and he was a child developmental theorist who was like really um, shaped child developmental psychology theory. And there are these experiments you can actually go on YouTube and see. A, you show a four-year-old, let's say that a card has two sides, and you know one side has a dog and another side has a cat. And you show the kid the dog side, and you say, "What do you see?" And the kid says, "It's a dog." And you're like, "Great." You turn it around, and you say, "Okay, now what do you see?" And the kid says, "It's a cat." And you're like, "Awesome." You turn it back around, and you say, "Now tell me what I see." But because they're four, they haven't developed the ability to cognitively abstract themselves and put themselves in your place to quote unquote, see the card from my point of view. And so they'll describe what they see, not what I see. You take the same kid and when they're six years old, they can do it. That's a developmental step. Okay. Mm. It's, a, it's a, it's a major cognitive leap. Yeah. To be able to make that abstraction. And can you see, I mean, first of all, just think of the implications of that. Like being able to actually see reality from someone else's point of view. Whoa, big fucking deal. You know, that's a big, big yeah. leap forward. Yes. Okay. Now think about there are like nine more stages of development that you can go through as an adult that are as profound. Okay. And they're, they get sort of abstract and, and difficult to talk about because, um, well, just because when you're talking about how we make meaning, then um, words become kind of fuzzy. And it's actually, this is not a cop-out. It's just true to say that, like, um, it is, it's axiomatic of development that if you're at a certain stage, you cannot see the world from 
from later stages. If you're at if you're at a later stage, you can see what it's like to see the world from earlier stages, but not the other way around. Yeah. But you, so you're you're not you don't know what you don't know, that's, right? That's right. That's right. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, it's very humbling. Yeah, it's a just rest in that truth. So um, here's something that I that I that I saw that was like the big aha moment for me was there was a meta study done recently um, that took a bunch of population wide developmental studies and said basically like are people growing like how what's the deal and what can we map age to developmental stage and here's the trend over this was like 104 different studies with n equals i forget i don't know in the 10,000 range of people studied um so like a pretty significant study um the trend was basically people grow through developmental stages to about stage maybe four out of five, four or five out of a total of nine mm-hmm. until they're 25 years old. And then after 25 years old, the line is actually flat. Like people just aren't really growing and maturing past the level of past age 25. And when I saw that, I was like, Oh my God, yes, this is, th- this is the problem. This is the problem underneath all problems. Any like think of any problem in our culture, sexism, racism, political gridlock, environmental catastrophe. These problems are not being solved because collectively we have not yet reached a developmental stage at which it is possible to solve them. This is like the Einstein quote of it's not possible to solve a problem at the same level of thinking that you were at when you created it. And so um, we need a critical mass of leaders who are developed enough to um actually act in a concerted way to solve these problems. It's also, I mean, that's what I just said is, is probably too unnuanced of a statement, but it's directionally true in the sense that people aren't really developing and our culture um, is, de- is only developed say to that center of gravity stage four or five in a nine develop nine stage model. And so we kind of develop people culture wide to that stage but going beyond that is actually very difficult for people because there are, there's kind of a gravitational pull society-wide to stay at that stage. Um, so, yeah. So, so with your work, you want to contribute to, to human development. Yeah, and that I do. Impact, that impacts different spheres of influence, like business, politics, and environment, the things you mentioned. Yeah, bro. Like, dude, your developmental stage is how is like how you see everything. Period. Like, <laughs> period. Exclamation point. Three exclamation points. Plus your enneagram type. I mean, you get a really. And I mean, that's like the flavor of your consciousness and how you see shit. Period. And, yeah. um, you know, there are there are wider, more adequate maps of reality that are available to you that you don't have because. Um, you're at X stage and, you know, there are higher ones. And I'm also speaking about myself when I, when I, when I say this. So, um, yeah, I think human development is like the issue underneath all issues. Um, and I think our society needs to be much more aware of this. And it's kind of like, I'm on a mission to change, to shift our national yeah. conversation around it. And, and, um, if you dream big, because how long have you now been, um, working with Enneagram yourself? I've been working with Enneagram for like seven years. I mean, in a coaching way, maybe five, four or five years. Um, 
So yeah. four, let's say four to seven years. So sure. if you dream big, uh, how do you want to achieve this? Or like now, what's your what's your dream? Like your long term dream with this topic? Man, that's a great question. Um, I mean, speaking personally, just I would like to be doing a lot more public speaking just to actually share this information. I mean, just to that last five minutes of me talking, I want to make that same speech to business leaders, to politicians, to educators, to parents, to you know, anyone who listen, any and especially anybody who has an outsized influence on the people around them, uh, like parents or like leaders of large companies and stuff like that. Um, I would love to also see maybe, uh, gosh, I don't know if I'm thinking really big, maybe there's like, uh, government sponsored at scale plans of coaching for people to, to help support them, you know, um, grow through, through stages or at the very, or, and even just shifting education itself to include the inner world. By the way, the inner world, I care about so much because a sense of one's own interiority is one of the things that happens as you grow through your, through developmental stages. And that's also why I think the Enneagram is very powerful. There's And there was a study, very exciting study done recently that took people through a particular Enneagram program and it had a it had an impact, like a very acute, powerful impact on the developmental stage of people who went through it. Um, there's interesting ways to get into this, but like, for example, you know... Yeah. Can yeah, you give an example? It was, it was developmentally facilitative. To, to learn the Enneagram. So that's one of the reasons I think the Enneagram is great. Um, and yeah, this is, a, I mean, you're pushing me on this question in a good way. Like I don't really have a specific vision for what I want to build yet. It's more just like, I want to start spreading the word and then a uh, vision I'm hoping will emerge and consolidate as I, as I, as I grow. Well, this, this podcast is, a, yeah, this is, is, a, good, is a good uh, step. Yeah. So we have we have long term macro dreams. Yeah. But then let's look a bit at the, at the present moment, and um, to what extent do you see traction? I mean, I'm showing interest. I'm inviting you for this podcast, for instance. Mm -hmm. But in your surroundings, to what extent do you see interest, traction? How's that going right now? Oh, and I'm not no. talking from a financial business point of view, but more yeah. from a excitement, interest point of view. That's a great question. Um, I don't see a lot of traction actually. And partly I think it's a me problem. Like partly this is a, okay. There's a couple things. Um, caring about development itself is actually a facet of certain stages you might say. And so like earlier stages won't really be that motivated or swayed by the speech I gave. Hmm. Um, and so partly there's the problem of how do I start speaking about this in a way that can connect to people where they're actually at, as opposed to just me wanting to spread my mission across the world and being an evangelist. <laughs> um, and so, 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 so you need to meet people, people at where they at. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a, this is a thing for me. Like I really need to work on this. So, um, there are certain kindred spirits who I connect with. You know, maybe you being one of them, it's like a, who sort of are interested in development and personal growth. And and this is an interesting idea, like development at scale. And I would say those are, you know, collaborators in the space. But in terms of 
traction, like getting people interested in the, in the movements of this, like launching, you might say like the revolution <laughs> around it. Yeah. I don't know. I, um, I would, I, I guess I'm, I'm still in the early stages of crafting my messaging around this and, um, yeah, would I mean if anybody's listening to this podcast and you have ideas for how to like start communicating more about this, like please reach out to me. I would love to learn from you because um, this is a big deal. Yeah, that's great. And what type of people show most interest? Because because there's founders, there's leaders, there's coaches, yeah, there's parents, there's individuals. So what type of people do you see most excited now in in your current, let's say, business or or, or passion? In this specific conversation we're having, like development at scale, the the people that I find are most interested in it are coaches and fellow developmental practitioners. Hmm. And, you know, people who in a sense are kind of already like they kind of get it. Um, and that's not a, I don't know how to put this. It's not a... Um, by get it, I just mean like they've 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 gone through some kind of personal transformation, or they've they've just through some personal interest have taken classes and are now coaching people and see the potential impact of transformative work and developmental work and stuff like that. Um, when I work with founders, a lot of times, you know, or investors or people like that, a lot of times, it's just you know people are interested in learning how to be more effective at their job. And how to, for example, as a founder, how to create a culture that's great or how to resolve interpersonal conflict or things like that. And um, development becomes an outcome of our work together, but it's not their initial interest usually in it. Usually it's like, I want to be more effective at X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And that specific hook point of I want to learn how to be a better people leader is what gets them interested in these kinds of activities that are facilitated about development and coaching itself. So, you know, maybe that's a way to frame it. It's yeah, like, they're interested in, in solving a specific problem or getting right. more effective in a specific skill. That's correct. But yeah. not interested in, in broader developmental uh, yeah. Um, yeah. things. Um, it is, it is interesting. I mean, I got interested through personal transformation and, um, Partly maybe because I'm also a little bit of a three and a bit compulsive self-improvement. Sure. But also I love to coach entrepreneurs and work on all sorts of different projects. And through that, I meet so many people. Yeah. And that's also why I got, got interested in it. Uh -huh. But also because I got annoyed that I kept drinking coffee, you know, kept drinking too much alcohol. At some point, you really dig deeper. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, why am I so educated, but still like, like sucking at these elements, right? Yeah. Um, and that's but now I see your um, your uh, your passion, and yeah, maybe the challenge for you is to translate it into something tangible that you indeed can change, right? Because yeah. business, politics, education—it's it's a lot. So yeah, the question is where to start, right, or how how to implement it, right? Because um, if you change education, like yeah, you know where where to start. Um, is there anything else you want to say about your vision before we move to the next topic? Um, no, just to say, I mean, I like even just as I was listening to your story of how you got interested in this, this field and this work, there's 
like one theme that I, that I hear a lot is this, I got sick of doing X, like that thing of I'm sick of knowing everything that I need to do and knowing that I shouldn't be drinking this much coffee and booze, but I keep doing it. What the hell is going on? That's, that's an entry point for a lot of people that kind of getting sick of myself thing. Another entry point for people is something that happens that's way out of their control. Like some, something that shatters their world that forces them in a sense to confront a new way of making meaning like, you know, their parent dies or, um, or they get injured or they get fired. Um, or they have a child, you know, these kinds of, these kinds of major life moments usually often cause shifts for us. Um, but, uh, they're usually very personal, you know, and, and facilitating development at scale or sort of instigating it at scale or something like that is a really, it's a really interesting question to ask. And, um, and you, but you bump up against these like very, like, you know, the choice to develop is a super personal one at all. You know, it's like, and people have a right to be who they are and stay where they're at. So, yeah. um, yeah, some of my friends they've never had maybe this 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 clear frustration or clear setback. Then maybe mm-hmm. you're also less inclined uh, to go. But uh, that's right. But well, I really uh, like your your vision, and I feel you're you're onto something. And maybe it takes some time, but you're definitely onto something. Let's. Um, I'm in Latin America at the moment, and I've read that the history of the Enneagram also has some Latin American roots, like you're a right. guy from Bolivia and a guy from uh-huh. Chile. Um, I don't need like a one hour lecture on the history, but is there something that you want to share in the history that is kind of cool for listeners to, to know about? And I, I like oh. a bit this, it has, it has a bit this exotic roots. Yeah. The history of the Enneagram is, is very, it's fascinating and mysterious and like where the Enneagram symbol came from is a whole interesting topic. And I'll actually be honest, I'm, Sometimes I am sheepish about even speaking about it because the fact that its origin is shrouded in so much mystery and mysticism, sometimes I think is a, is a turnoff for people who are interested in learning about it. Um, Cause you, you were talking about things like maybe an origin in like pre-sand Egypt. And then, you know, uh, a man named Gurdjieff who was an Armenian mystic who, who discovered it, who then, who also built his, an entire, school in the early twenties of inner work called the fourth way. And he had, and he traveled around the world a lot and discovered ancient wisdoms for self-actualization and had a whole following. And then later the guy you're talking about, the Bolivian, his name is Oscar Chazo. He discovered Gurdjieff's work and then mapped a bunch of actually, wait, was he Bolivian or Chile? I can't remember actually. Um, Anyway, the point is he, he mapped, a bunch of spiritual ideas to the Enneagram, like the tree of life from Jewish Kabbalah, Christian mysticism, some Sufist ideas, and in a series of flashes of brilliant insights, basically discovered the Enneagram and the nine, or the Enneagram as a typology. It wasn't a typology before that. And then he put it in order and kind of realized that this is describing types of people. And he founded the Arica Institute in, in I believe, Chile. And then from there, there's been a kind of diaspora because then he taught a guy named Claudine Aranjo who came to the United States and then started doing, he, he made the connection that like, oh, type ones really sound a lot like my patients who are OCD 
So he started making those connections. And then, and then since then, there's been a whole diaspora of teachers and other people who are, who've added to the system. But yeah, it had really ancient, interesting, weird, mysterious roots, partly in South America. And have you ever um, uh, physically uh, traveled to any of those places that the Enneagram had, had roots in or, or not yet? I love that question. I haven't, no, but I have a really good friend who, I, if you're interested in the Enneagram, I recommend you check out his work too, John Luckovich. He wrote a book called The Instinctual Drives in the Enneagram. And he leads spiritual journey trips to Egypt. He's kind of an Egyptologist himself. And um, he leads basically like Enneagram discovery trips through Egypt. And I'm really excited to go on one with him at some point. So it's coming. Haven't gone yet, though. Uh, that sounds super cool. I mean, I have a background. Yeah. I founded a travel uh, company and I always oh, like yeah. to travel. Yeah. Yeah, Sometimes cool. I get excited about things. So I did a transcendental meditation course in the Netherlands. Uh-huh. And then I started reading about the history and the, the guru uh, that had an ashram in India. Yeah. And the, the Beatles also traveled to that ashram. And I traveled to, to India with my brother. My brother is a big music fan. And then I was into the Transcendental Meditation. I went to the ashram. Yeah. And it was kind of cool to see like physically where the Beatles came and like where that com- came from. Super cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's, uh, that's uh, something that yeah, you, you could have done. Um, in terms of like the history and um, some people are really fanatic about this. Some people say it's not like validated scientifically. Mm-hmm. So to what extent is it validated scientifically? Yes or no? And to what extent does it matter or is it even possible uh, with the inner work to, to validate something scientifically? Yeah, this is a really important question and a, and a common one I get. So the gist is the Enneagram is in some ways being scientifically validated. Um, in some ways, and this is the more important point I believe, is that it's it is, I believe, impossible to scientifically validate um, for a lot of reasons. So, first of all, the study of personality itself really kind of reveals or exposes the limits of scientific inquiry as a as a framework. So, for example, like what I mean by that is. Um, a scientific experiment is a hypothesis about how a single isolated variable affects something else. And it's very easy to do a scientific experiment about physics, for example. Like you can create a laboratory environment in which you establish a vacuum and then you can drop a, you know, a metal ball and a feather at the same time and see that they fall at the same rate. And therefore that says something about gravity, but you've isolated something, you know, in the study of personality, it's, it's impossible to isolate anything. Um, you are a very complex organism and what you ate two hours ago, plus the sentence I just said three minutes ago is possibly affecting you right now. And so when you're trying to isolate, for example, a feeling state or how somebody's inner structure is, you know, works and you're trying to get at it through like a test or some standardized way. I mean, there's just no, like, it's like you, you never step in the same stream twice because it's always moving. It's the same thing with people, you know? And so um, not to mention you take the subject itself, which is a person, which is a complex, ever evolving kaleidoscopic moments, moment shifting dynamic thing, impossible to isolate any aspect of the inner world. And then you take the researcher who's also a person 
who also comes from a subjective inner world. And so um, even the questions that a researcher asks is flavored by their personality type, their developmental stage, so many different, so many different things. And so what you get is, is basically that it's not really possible to objectively or scientifically study personality because personality is subjectivity, sub studying subjectivity. And so um, the Enneagram is, and like I said, with language, I mean, the best tool we have is just language. Like, and, and the best tool we actually, let me say it another way. When you're talking about tangible physical reality, material reality, like you and I can both agree that a table is X inches long because we can both pull out a measuring tape and look at it and then we can agree. Um, and to an, ex to an extent, you could say that that's science. <laughs> but if, I, if you say you're sad, how can I verify that? I could, I could, I could hook up electrodes to your mind and I could measure electrical impulses, but the, but electrical impulses in the brain do not equate to a feeling. And you want proof on that? Go read the book, how emotions are made by Lisa Feldman Barrett. There's, you know, the idea is an emotion is an interpretation of some somatic and by somatic, I mean body basically like, you're sensing some set of sensations and you're because of the context that you're in interpreting that to be some emotion. <laughs> Basically my point is, Oh, and actually let me say this differently. The same exact somatic fingerprints can be interpreted to mean different emotions, depending on the context and the same emotion that you think you're having can have different somatic fingerprints. So there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between your electrical impulses in your brain and the feeling that you're having right now. You see, and so my point is, um, study personality is a very vaporous um, thing. It's it's not concrete, and the Enneagram is a framework that tries to provide some concreteness with the language that provides, the symbol it provides. But all these are just tools to explore a dynamic, ever-changing, evolving inner world and kind of. Um, get as close as you can to identifying um, a more or less consistent inner structure. And my point of view is that the Enneagram has done that. It's very good at that, but also it depends on who's teaching it because, you know, um, up, uh, the Enneagram is all, it, it lives in the mouths of the teachers who are teaching it. It doesn't live in abstraction, you know? Um, no, so I, I that was, see that I really, yeah. what is really insightful for me that science uh, tries to prove the, the impact of a single variable on other variables. Yeah. I think I was not so aware of that. And now I can understand that with the inner world, it's very difficult to kind of exclude one, one variable. Right. Right. Um, yeah. If you look at, um, so I understand now the scientific question. If you look at application mm -hmm. in, for instance, business uh, world, yeah. corporate or startup or, or spiritual world or politics, can you elaborate a little bit to what extent it's applied in different fields? I know you don't have a scientific overview of this, but can you, based on your gut feeling, where is it applied more? What type of worlds? Um, I would say mostly the world of therapy and coaching is where it's being applied. But other applications, certainly in teamwork. I mean, mm -hmm. the most popular right now, um, personality typology in corporate world tends to be uh, the Myers-Briggs. And I think partly that's just because it's super popular and, and it's, it has um, 
a pretty amazing, uh, how do I put this? Like, well, just success begets success. And the Myers-Briggs got really popular in the business world and has stayed popular for a long time. And, but the Enneagram is also very powerful for teamwork, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Other, um, I've seen books written about the Enneagram parenting, which I think are incredibly valuable. Uh, I would love to see more stuff happening in that, in that realm. Um, I also have seen books about the Enneagram and, um, like there's a book that came out recently called the Enneagram and black liberation, which is all about inner work and the Enneagram and how it applies to, you know, I'm, I've never read the book actually, but I'm assuming from the title, it has something to do with racism in America and things like that. Um, I think that would be a very beautiful application of the Enneagram. Um, in terms of, I mean, to your question where it's, where it's being used popularly. Yeah. Probably coaching therapy and in certain business contexts, I would love to see, um, Parenting, I would love to see education, and I would love to see uh, politics <laughs> um, as well. That, is, that's is, the last frontier, honestly. Do you know what uh, Enneagram Donald Trump is, for instance, or Joe Biden? I do. I, at least I think I do. Yeah, Donald Trump is probably an eight, and Joe Biden's probably a seven. So Donald Trump, let me check my, my notes. I prepared something for this conversation. Okay. One second. So an eight is a challenger. So Trump is a challenger and mm-hmm. Biden is an enthusiast. My, that's, that's my thinking, yeah. Wow. So what, like Trump, I mean, this is random. I start talking about Trump, but like he's, I mean, he's a known figure. So can you explain a bit of his behavior through the Enneagram? Yeah, sure. So, and I'm going to be, if you're going to, if the follow-up is going to be about Biden, I'm going to be a lot less um, articulate. But so Trump, okay. um let me just first of all say Trump is an extremely controversial figure, and to say that he's an eight, I think maybe is. I just want to let you know if you're if you are new to the Enneagram and maybe you are an eight. Not every eight is like Donald Trump. If you like Donald Trump, then great. If not then um, he's not the way that every eight is. Um, eights, and like we we talk about with the levels of development, eights manifest different qualities and behaviors at different levels of health. Um, my opinion is that Donald Trump is a very unhealthy eight (laughs) and um, Donald Trump has certain eight qualities. Like he's um, he's bold and um, in a sense, uh, brash blunt um, has his body energy is solid and, and, and intense. And the challenger, the word challenger, I mean, he, he challenges people. He um, eights typically like to challenge themselves to take on, you know, you know, to climb the mountain, to run for president, these kinds of things. Um, and when eights are really healthy, they can be extremely constructive in the world. So you think of like a Martin Luther King, who was an eight, um, or um, I'm blanking on my other eight references at the moment. But yeah, the point is that eights can be extremely constructive and are willing to put themselves on the line for ideas they believe in, for people um, they're willing to throw their weight around more than other types. In fact, they kind of like more than other, they're more comfortable in a fight than other types. Um, and more comfortable with confrontation. And you can see obviously in Donald Trump's style that he's very comfortable with confrontation and chaos and the kinds of things that, you know, he does. Uh, my opinion is that he's used his eightness in, in a really destructive way. So he has a high tolerance for, for conflict. Yeah. That's, that's clear. Yeah. And, 
he is unhealthy aide in your opinion, but still you became president. How the hell? I mean, no, no one un- maybe understands it, but how can you then still so so productive in a way or successful yeah. according to certain standards? Well, that's a profound question um, to abstract it for a second from Donald Trump. I mean, think of like um, certain types have an ability to be extremely functional and productive, even when they're really unhealthy. Like I'll take my own type, type threes, type threes want to be admired and successful. And in the really unhealthy states, threes still want that and they want it really badly. And they're willing to do kind of anything it takes to be successful. And so you can get a lot of like really cold, icy, like hyperproductive wall street types that are just like, you know, give me the money or like, um, the Enron folks, you know, a lot of like business, just like cutthroat business competitive stuff comes from an unhealthy three lens. Um, type eights, unhealthy type eights have, are famous for running countries. Saddam Hussein was an unhealthy type eight. Um, uh, Vladimir Putin is probably a type eight. Um, then you also get, you know, type eights, as I said, who are leaders of, like social justice movements and doing really amazing things to the world. Point is, is that um, certain types, certain types, when they're really unhealthy, really collapse internally and just can't do anything. Like usually nines or fours or fives. I mean, these are types that have a kind of implosion. Other types become like megalomaniacal when they're really, really unhealthy. Like a Donald Trump, for example. Yeah, yeah, I can see. So, so you can still perform as an unhealthy. Yes. figure. I think right. I've been unhealthy for a long time, but I was still productive in, in, in certain areas of my life. Yeah. Um, productivity, actually, this is an interesting point real quick. Productivity itself is not a metric of psychological health, period, end yeah. of statement. I mean, that's, and that's a big part of the problem in the, in a lot of the self-development and business worlds is that it's all about how do I be more productive, more efficient, more focused, but that actually is in a sense, um, keeping people fixed in a state of, you know, being a sort of average three, <laughs> for example. Yeah, uh, I can I can see that. So I, I start to shift from maybe uh, business productivity towards like like well being and, and psychological health and being. So I, I'm in that shift. Yeah. Another question I have because we said you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. um, and you're also still developing yourself. Yeah. So you also probably don't know what you don't know, but you're so aware of all these levels of development. So as an Enneagram teacher, are you aware of the next steps that you want to make? Like how, how does that work? <laughs> uh, that's a beautiful question. Um, well, I'm as, a, I'm as aware as I can be at the moment, um, which is all we can, anybody can do. I'll say one thing that has shown up for me recently is um, a much greater humility in the face of my patterns. So like, um, okay, here's something that's counterintuitive about development is that um, the more developed one is, the more, um, how do I put this? Uh, the more willing one is to look at the authentic nature of one's own patterns that keep them stuck. It's not necessarily that, you know, you're 
prof- you're like profoundly liberated and, and unstuck at higher at, or later stages of development. Um, it's, but your awareness and re- of, of your patterns and your relationship to them um, has a lot more texture and, and distance. So um, what I, so one of the things that's coming up for me these days is I'm just starting to unearth um, uh, let me just actually get specific. I'm dancing around the point. Okay, so I, what I noticed about myself recently is in the in the Enneagram, there's like a 401 concept. That's the idea of the, the trifixation. And I'm not, I'm not going to explain the whole thing, but the idea is you have a body and a heart and a mind, and the Enneagram types are based on your, your body, heart, and mind. And um, there are body types, heart types, and mental types in the Enneagram. But because you have a body and a heart and a mind, you have kind of a flavor or a type in each of those centers. And my trifixation is three, nine, six and three, nine and six in the Enneagram are all types that are, um, you might say self-seeking in an external way. So like threes are anchoring their emotional location in the admiration of other people. Nines are anchoring their somatic location in the energy of other, of other people or like the collective and sixes are, doubting their own inner guidance and anchoring their cognitive location and the certainty of other people as a habit. And so the structure of a three, nine, six internally, um, my friends over at anygrammar.com have given it the um, horrifyingly accurate name of the Bermuda triangle, which is like, <laughs> it's like the, it's the, the, the difficulty of not being able to find myself and really know what I think, what I want, um, where I am, who they're like, I'm this person, you know, I believe this. That's a very difficult thing for me. And it manifests in very local specific ways. Like for example, like one that you're experiencing right now as we're working together is I just launched a coaching business called Myelin Grove. And then mm-hmm. as soon as I did, I realized I was like, wait a minute, is this actually what I want? And then I went into the fog and that state of like not knowing what I want, self-questioning, what is my actual direction kind of thing settled in again for me. And that is a pattern that has been alive in me literally for my entire life. I mean, it's a whole thing. And now I'm just like getting a lot more texture around it and seeing it again with more clarity. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't have as much of a powerful grip on me, but it is, I'm seeing it a lot for what it is a lot more clearly. And that's part, that's the first step in a sense is just seeing something so that it can reduce its power over you. But the first step is just noticing. Anyway, that's that's where I'm at. I guess it's like you know, the punchline is wanting to your question, like what's my next step is um, uh, having pro- maybe I would put it in, in, a, in a, a phrase it like um, being more skillful at consistently self-remembering so that I don't get cons- so lost in these patterns of self-forgetting all the time. <laughs> Yeah. So being consistent in, in self-remembering. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's beautiful. Um, but I ask all my guests, it's like what books or films have influenced you in a positive way. You already mentioned a few books during the podcast, like, like the matrix and, and how emotions are made. But what, what has influenced you positively? Wow. I love that question. Okay. So let me, first of all, just say, I actually just published a notion page that you can check out if you want. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm calling it the wisdom bookshelf for coaches and leaders. And it's about a hundred books that I think are incredible. 
um, wow. that have influenced me or that I, that I recommend to people often in my coaching practice. Um, I can share that with you later, but it has, it has answers to this question, a hundred answers mm -hmm. to this question. I'll just share a couple. We can, so we can add it to the description of your, your, who you are in the podcast. Cool. Sure. Yeah. That'd be great. The, this is going to be a shock, I would say, for people who know what this book is. But the book, I would say, the novel that most influenced me ever is called The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. The Fountainhead. Yeah. That's a play too, right? It's a movie. Is it, like, is it about two architects? It is. It's about two architects. Yeah. And, and why is it so fascinating to you? That book, I read it when I was 24, 25, right when I was starting the piano thing. And... There are, okay, there are a few reasons why that book really, really hit me. Um, first of all, it's about two architects, as you said, and one of the architects is a guy named Howard Rourke, and he's like Ayn Rand's vision of an ideal man. And what that means for her is just, he's a guy who just is absolutely uncompromising in living a life according to his values. He doesn't, the first scene of the book is he's getting kicked out of his architecture school because he doesn't do the dumb homework assignments that are assigned to him because he wants to build buildings that he wants to build. He wants to draft blueprints that he wants to draft. He doesn't want to just go through the dumb rigmarole of like what someone else is assigning. Um, he is contrasted in the book with a guy named Peter Keating, who is, in my, in my opinion, an Enneagram type three, an unhealthy Enneagram three. And Peter Keating is, he's graduating the top of his class, but he's cheated his way through the school and he gets a job at the top architecture firm in New York city And he has this incredible career as a, as a public prominent architect, but his, his inner life is absolutely empty and hollow and he is deceptive and he cheats his way through everything. And he's just a, he's just a shell of a person. And Ayn Rand paints him as this pathetic, um, like loser basically. And, um, I related to Peter Keating <laughs> as, uh, like that was kind of who I was in college. Um, including actually some of the cheating um, when I was really unhealthy as a type three. And that was part of my whole journey discovering the Enneagram. Another like piece of it that was just so profound was learning about the deceptive nature of threes and the dishonesty sometimes of threes when they're really unhealthy. So when I read that book, it was just like, oh my God, um, this guy who I related to was this kind of like, um, he's not really the villain of the novel, but he's like, It was just a very precise and amazing portrait of a character that I didn't want to relate to anymore. Howard Rourke, the alternative she presents was like kind of in a sense who I wanted to be. Um, it was like, you know, a guy who's living his life according to his values. And the book has a lot of problems philosophically for me. I mean, it's Ayn Rand as a person and as a, as a novelist and a philosopher basically doesn't really respect matters of the human heart or emotions at all. And um, she doesn't like Enneagram threes and the entire orientation to wanting to be liked. Like she thinks that's basically like um, weakness. And um, so as an Enneagram teacher and as a type three myself, I have like a pretty major problem with all of that. But, but the way that she characterized that particular, those two character journeys side by side was like really, really impactful for me. And I've read it a couple of times and it just like is amazing for me. It's just, That's very inspiring. That's very inspiring. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, my my ex girlfriend uh, is an actor, and we we used to go to theater sometimes. And I saw the play in in Amsterdam. Uh huh. Yeah, but it is definitely inspiring. So it makes you 
aware, right? Like I want to be that person that lives uncompromising to his own, uncompromising to his own values. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing the list. We will add it to your, to your profile. Sure. Um, sure. That's re- really useful. Another quite question I have in your work as a personal development uh, professional, uh, do you want to focus on the Enneagram, let's say the next five years or 10 years or, 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 or something like that? Or do you want to broaden your portfolio or offering with other tools as well? I mean, both options are valid, but what's your style? Well, my style is, I, I know this is, I'm not really allowed to say this, but kind of both. I mean, I, um, I just can't stop being obsessed with the Enneagram. I just love it. It's just, <laughs> it's just amazing to me. And, I'm, and I haven't, I'm never going to reach the bottom of it. It's just, it continues to reveal amazing new things to me. And I just love it. And so I think I, there's no way that I'm not going to keep doubling down on it as a thing. Um, including, I mean, even, I mean, just creating content with it, creating courses, potentially building a school around it. It's like a whole, like, I want that to be a big part of my life and my contribution to the world. And I want people, I want people, I want to help people discover it and, and go deep with it. But I also recognize that human development itself is a bigger conversation than just the Enneagram. And there are other tools and frameworks that I've discovered that have also had majorly profound influences on me. And um, just to name a couple, like the work of Byron Katie is extraordinary. Um, Jenlin's focusing, which is a whole sent body sensation discovery practice. That's sort of abstract, but it's very cool. Alexander technique. Um, the point is, I mean, there's, there's the Enneagram, which is like a map of of personality in the inner world and then there's developmental theory which the enneagram sort of supports but the developmental theory i would say is kind of bigger than or an umbrella that includes the enneagram and then there's the question of like what are the things that you actually can do what practices can you do that facilitate development one of them is like learn the enneagram but that's just one another is like do the work of byron katie which is a practice of filling out this worksheet called a judge your neighbor worksheet and then doing certain um, you sort of examine your thoughts in, in all these different ways. It's very cool. Others are working with the body or doing kind of meditation and stuff like that. So I guess I would say maybe like there's the maps and there's the practices. Um, and I'm interested in, in both. Yeah, that's that's great. So the Enneagram is really your your foundation at the moment, but there's different tools that you're interested in and that you want to want to spread. Yeah. Maybe a more personal question, like you've made a few shifts in your career as, as people do nowadays. I mean, it's different from 50 years ago. Yeah. Right? From Princeton to, to piano to, to Enneagram. Like, can you ever envision that you will switch again? Or do you kind of feel like you've arrived on like where you really want to land? This is a great question. And especially in the context of the Bermuda Triangle thing I just said. I mean, I have every once in a while, like I catch some inner wind that leads me to fantasize a life as like a rapper (laughs) or like, (laughs) you know, it's, I mean, it's hilarious how uh, just a quick story. Like at the beginning of the pandemic, I was alone in my New York apartment with nobody to check me (laughs) and my insanity. And I, and I literally 
that's actually what happened. I was I list, I was listening to Childish Gambino. I was like, oh my god, like this is I can't believe I didn't see it before. This is my one true path. I'm supposed to be a rap star, and um, it's this is part of the Bermuda Triangle thing. Is like the way that I can get like convinced that oh, I'm actually supposed to do this other thing. I'm like pretty honestly fucking sick of being, um, <laughs> you know, uh, taken by these um, compelling fantasies that last for four or five days that really like totally destabilize my sense of self. And I really like the lane I'm in. I, I like, like this is in my heart of hearts where I, I feel like I'm supposed to be in the realm of human development. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, there are all these other parts of me. I mean, I've done music, I've done performance and stuff like that. And maybe those will get marshaled in some way to serve this, vision but i feel like yeah my i think my most authentic answer is no i want to stay here this is that sounds that sounds good it sounds really uh decisive i change a lot and often but now once again with the soul kitchen i feel it's really something i will stick to but yeah you yeah. never know <laughs> cool. mm -hmm. i um as a seven um and in my human design is manifesting generator what i learned about myself is that it's really important for me to let go once I feel the energy is over. Mm. Sometimes in the past I was holding on too long because I felt I, I was supposed to hold on. Yeah. But I've kind of learned to, to let go when energy stops. So nowadays I don't make longer term commitments. Okay. So when I meet people I collaborate with, I propose short term collaborations like we're also oh. doing. And then yeah, yeah. I, I can always renew instead of like committing for like long term and then like um, having to stop. Cool. Okay. Anyway, is there anything that I should have asked? Is there a question that, that I forgot to ask an element of the Enneagram that we should highlight? I mean, you can do a PhD in this topic, of course, but is there anything? Hmm. I would just say, I mean, there's, we flirted with the idea of doing the nine types thing. And I would say, if you want to learn about the nine types, a really good introductory resource, there's a few introductory resources I'll just mention. Um, uh, well, actually, I have a course on my website that you can buy. That's the one that you're going through. You can check that out. Mm -hmm. um, it's, free. it's it's that would be like a deep dive. Um, I also wrote an ebook that you can check out. Um, if you want a podcast, there's Russ Hudson, who's an amazing Enneagram teacher, did a really good overview of the Enneagram types and kind of like basic Enneagram concepts in a podcast on. Sam Parrish's show, which the Knowledge Project. So I would check out his podcast there. There's also um, Enneagrammer.com, which I think are producing some of the most amazing, interesting, fresh, new, good content in the Enneagram. And those are all good places to start. Um, but yeah, um, no, I think we've done a pretty thorough job. And if, if you have um, an inner fire that's been kindled around personal development, then I hope I encourage you to check out the Enneagram. I think it's a really beautiful tool. I agree. I think it's fascinating. So if you're interested after this episode, check out uh, the website of Josh, his list of books and his, uh, his course. Um, if you would have to share one piece of wisdom with people that are, let's say 10 year younger than, than you, mm -hmm. what uh, as a last question, what would the piece of wisdom be? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> huh.
Do inner work. <laughs> uh, period. That's great. That's a beautiful last piece of wisdom. Thank you very much, Josh, for, for being here. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. It's real fun. I'll keep following your adventures. Thanks, Jasper. Bye. Bye. And thanks for listening, uh, people. See you next episode.